Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening and God bless. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is perfume poured out, therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you, let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine, rightly do they love you. I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Qadar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, tell me you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who is veiled besides the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow the tracks of the flock and the pasture of your kids beside the shepherd's tent. Oh, great. Hello. Y'all look great out there. Uh, my name is Brittany. As you heard, a lot of folks call me Smash. Um, if you want to hear that story later, I'll, I will tell it to you. But I'm really grateful to be here with you today. Um, I originally learned about Urban Village um, right when Urban Village was starting. I was a part of a faith uh, a new faith community plant in Virginia called Rise. We were starting around the same time, and we heard about what was going on up here in Chicago, um, and we were very excited. So it's pretty surreal to be here with you today, um, all of these years later, to be able to worship with you. So thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Every time I preach, I like to say that no matter what, no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done or what you've failed to do, no matter what you believe or what you doubt, no matter who you love, you are welcome in this place. God loves you an infinite amount, and I'm so glad to see you, so thank you. On Tuesday of this past week, two members of the California legislature asked the governor to posthumously pardon Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin is considered to be the mastermind behind much of the civil disobedience and organizing during the civil rights movement. He organized the March on Washington. He ghost wrote for Reverend Dr. King. Actually, Reverend Dr. King's first ever thing that he published was ghost written by Bayard Rustin. And he orchestrated many of the actions that King led. He was a staunch pacifist and resisted warmongering. Rustin was arrested many, many times for counteracting white supremacy and militarism. But in January 1953, Rustin was arrested in Pasadena, California and charged with lewd vagrancy, a common charge against gay men for engaging in consensual sexual behavior. He was arrested for who he was, 
He spent two months in jail for that so-called offense. And he had to register as a sex offender. Now, Rustin, he had already been threatened and cheated and ostracized for his sexuality before this particular arrest. But this arrest for lewd vagrancy was optimized by his opponents to discredit him, to discredit the civil rights movement, and to strain relationships that Rustin had with justice makers all around the country. So it's wonderful that he's finally being pardoned way too late. Because of this arrest, he lost his job with the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Senator Strom Thurmond, a segregationist, read Rustin's arrest record on the Senate floor and used it to delegitimize the civil rights movement, calling him a pervert. Thurmond also supplied the report to the FBI, who already had a growing file on Rustin. And then later in 1960, a representative who was angry at both Rustin and Reverend Dr. King because they were going to march outside of the Democratic National Convention. This representative warned Dr. King that if he did not drop Bayard Rustin, that he would tell the press that King and Rustin were gay lovers. King acquiesced, called off the march, and distanced himself from Bayard Rustin. While he was in jail, while Bayard Rustin was in jail for his purported vagrancy, he wrote a letter to a colleague, which included this statement. He said, I know that for me, sex must be sublimated if I am to live with myself in this world any longer. Rustin, a man who was unashamed of being gay, a man who never denied his true self, was so overcome by the weight of societal shame and disappointment that he proclaimed that he would bury a very integral part of himself. It seems that perhaps he came to the conclusion that he could not love himself if he were to truly love the world and continue his work for liberation. Rustin's letters, there's a great uh, accumulation of Bayard Rustin's letters um, out there in the world if you want to read them, excuse me. But they demonstrate that for many years he fought this battle for, with himself. In the 1940s, he was under tremendous pressure from his mentor and boss, A.J. Musty, to reform his sexual ways and to settle down with a wife and children. He was imprisoned for his conscientious objection to war when the prison warden threatened to send him to a psych ward as a homosexual. And Rustin, he was, he was conflicted. He knew that his sexuality could be used against him, against his work, and against those who were working alongside him. He was always very confident in his own sexuality. He came out to his grandmother as a teenager, and in uh, an awesome grandma way, she said to him, well, I guess, Rustin, that's just what you got to do. And yet he understood how his sexuality clouded the perception of others. So he was torn. And then in 1945, he was approached by this woman. And this woman was like, Rustin, I love you. And she professed her love. And she was like, Rustin, 
if you just marry me, your work's going to be so much better. Your work for justice and nonviolence is going to be better if you just marry me. She told him to become the man that she and others thought that he should be. She claimed that a union with her, this is like a direct quote, will help all of humankind. All right, Helen. That's really, it was her name, Helen. It's like next level, Helen. But soon after this encounter, Rustin wrote a letter to his lover. At the time was Davis Platt. And Rustin described this excruciating dichotomy that he was experiencing. He said to Davis, I am certain that I felt much more complete with you. In fact, few times in my life have I ever been so happy. It is this emotion versus intellect that is so befuddling. Helen's challenge and my desire for her hope on one side, you and your life, Davis, on the other. I think many of us can understand this feeling of being torn so completely in two competing directions. We have carried the dread of not knowing which us we should be. Should I be the me that the world expects and desires? or the me that brings me wholeness and joy. Our society, and particularly the church, has often demanded that you cannot truly love yourself, love your people, and love the world all at the same time. Our contexts too often require that we give up one for the other. But thank goodness God does not work that way. God's love is creative and encompassing and complete. So surely our love is made to be that way as well. Biblical scholar and Episcopal priest Will Gaffney says, it is past time for us to love God herself in ourselves and in each other. Too long the church has taught us to love others at the expense of ourselves. It doesn't work that way. Boo. She said that. I didn't put that in there. <laughs> Doesn't work that way, boo. This is from one of Gaffney's sermons about the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And I'm curious right now, have you all here talked about the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon much? Maybe a little bit? A couple of times. Okay. So um, this is a, an eight-chapter book in the Hebrew Bible. It's very strange. And it's strange because not even once does it mention God, right? It seems like it's this very secular love song between two people. There's not even a commentator. There's no narrator. It's a woman and a man talking to each other. It's not linear, but it's about love. It has all these metaphors, all this imagery. It's very sensual. A lot of folks have just pretended like it's not there in the Bible, or they've just said that, oh, this is only about Christ and the church. So I think it's very brave of you all to invite a stranger <laughs> to come and preach to you about the most erotic thing ever. <laughs> Here we are. But in Reverend Will Gaffney's sermon about the Song of Songs, she commands that black is beautiful. And she describes how black folks have too long had to tend to the vineyards of others 
while being forced to ignore their own vineyards. The vineyard reference turns our gaze to the woman in the Song of Songs that we read about earlier. The woman who says that she is black and radiant. The woman who was in control of her own beautiful black body, who delights and revels and basks in the erotic intimacy that she shares with her lover. We're starting, well, you all are starting. We're starting. I'm here, so it's we're starting a new series this month about God's imagination as seen through black creativity. And today we're looking at God's creativity as expressed through love. We're going to see that love is a place of creativity and joy and resilience. We're going to see the creative ways that God loves in the life of Bayard Rustin and in the Song of Songs. As I talked about a bit earlier, Bayard Rustin, he was a genius organizer and a non-violently ferocious advocate for black folks. And he was pushed out and pushed aside over and over and over again. He was threatened by prison administration. He was sent to psychiatrists. He was reprimanded by his mentor and by those who claimed to love him. He was instructed, like actually instructed, to break up with his lover. His lover was instructed in the same way. He was propositioned by Helen. He was arrested and thrown in jail and humiliated, all because of who he was trying to love. But Rustin's story does not end with his humiliation. He went on to lead incredibly important actions for liberation. He went on to fight colonialism around the globe. He went on and kept loving the way that he was created to love. In 1977, Bayard Rustin met Walter Nagel. Picture of him there. It's a little light, but just... I really want you to appreciate the fashion of 1977. They would be partners until Bayard Rustin's death in 1987. Nagel called Rustin the love of his life. In the 1970s, obviously, they couldn't have any legal protections as a couple. So get this. This blows my mind. Bayard Rustin adopted Walter Nagel. I don't really understand like the legal ways you adopt an adult. I think that's awesome. But the fact that they figured out how to protect each other legally in a society that delegitimized their relationship, that is creative brilliance. In an interview, Walter Nagel said, we actually had to go through the process as if Bayard was adopting a small child. My biological mother had to sign a legal paper disowning me. They had to send a social worker to our home. When the social worker arrived, she had to sit down with us to talk to us to make sure that it was a fit home. I can't even imagine what that was like. Like the social worker being like, I, I can't even imagine. Like, what do you ask? What do you ask them? I don't know. I'm glad it worked out. But Walter Nagel said, but you know, we did that. We did what we did because we loved each other and because we were happy together. Bayard Rustin's story, this story is a glimpse of God's creative spirit. 
that makes a way out of no way, that brings creativity and love and revelry to places that seem dead or destroyed. One of Bayard Rustin's biographers calls him Rustin the Reveler. You saw him in an earlier picture with his mandolin that they brought him in jail, and he was always playing that to bring joy, to uh, bask in revelry, even though he was in prison. Rustin points us to God's radical, creative love, a love that turns the status quo on its head. Radical, creative love disarms the structures and the norms and the regulations that so often hold us captive. Radical, creative love is revelatory. And we see this also in the Song of Songs, an erotic love song that's in the Bible about a proudly black woman who is in control of her own body, her own longing, and desire. I spent a bit of time this week studying the Song of Songs. I've never, ever preached on this text before. And we definitely didn't spend much time on it at my Mennonite seminary. I didn't talk about it. I don't know if any of you all, you know, know the Anabaptists. We don't talk about sex. I'm not Anabaptist. I said we. They don't talk about sex. And this week, as my wife always does this, she always says, so, what are you preaching about this week? And nine times out of ten, I say Jesus. And she rolls her eyes at me and sighs and walks away. Um, but this week I said, the Song of Songs. And I was like, it's this erotic love poem about a black woman who owns her own body, her own sexuality, her own beauty. And my life was like, what? And I was like, yeah. And she asked, the Song of Songs is about a black woman? And I said, yeah, it is. And she said, how do you know? And I'm like, it's in the text. (laughs) And then I read her this translation I'm about to read you by Rabbi Marsha Falk that says, Yes, I am black and radiant. O city women watching me, as black as Kadar's goat hair tents or Solomon's fine tapestries, will you disrobe me with your stares? The eyes of many morning suns have pierced my skin, and now I shine black as the light before the dawn and I have faced the angry glare of others, even my mother's sons, who sent me out to watch their vines while I neglected all my own. And my wife, who was reared in the evangelical tradition, said, I've never heard that before. And friends, I hadn't ever heard this before either. So actually, we'd had this fun, like, spousal uh, research time. I don't know if any of you do this, like if you're partnered with your partners where you're like, oh, let's like research our horrible upbringing and what they taught us. <laughs> so we looked up the biblical translation that she was given when she was young, which was the New Living Translation. And the New Living Translation says this, I am dark but beautiful. O women of Jerusalem, dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. Don't stare at me because I am dark. The sun has darkened my skin. So we went from there, and Lindsay also, she looked up the curriculum that they taught her about Song of Songs. And it says this. It says, The woman in Song of Songs is a paradox of grace, dark in her heart, but lovely. 
The blackness of the woman in Song of Songs has been erased by most, trans, most translations and curriculums. Her darkness has been ascribed as a spiritual condition of lacking. White supremacy for too long has erased the bold, beautiful, emancipatory, creative love of God as expressed through a black woman's joy and pleasure. Like much of our colonial scriptural translation, the Song of Songs was whitewashed and over-spiritualized, stripping it of the scandalous and compelling truth, the truth that God's love is made manifest in the sensual revelry of a black woman. And for me, the Song of Songs is a queer text, it is queer because it describes a culturally inappropriate romance about mutual erotic love at a time when there was no mutuality. Relationship was more about the transference of capital in that society. But it's about a woman who resists the pressures and abuses of the men who attempt to contain her and instead delights in a lover who reciprocates her emotion and her action. The Song of Songs queers cultural norm by opening up possibilities for creative and liberative love. And this is what the Spirit does. This is who God is. God's creative love makes a way out of no way. God's creative love turns oppressive norms inside out. God's creative love queers our slimly defined notions of what love can be. We see this love demonstrated over and over and over again by the black community, folks who have loved in the most creative of ways, in the midst of the most oppressive situations. Several days ago, I came across an article. It's about some new research and it chronicles the life of William Dorsey Swan. Has anyone heard of him? I hadn't before I came across this. It's fairly new. But the researcher, Channing Gerard Joseph, is an historical researcher, journalist, former drag queen, and professor. He introduces us to William. And he says William was the first self-proclaimed drag queen. Joseph says, born in Maryland around 1858, William Dorsey Swan endured slavery, the Civil War, racism, police surveillance, torture behind bars, and many other injustices. But beginning in the 1880s, he was not only the first American activist to lead a queer resistance group, he also became, in the same decade, the first known person to dub himself a queen of drag, or more familiar, a drag queen. A Washington Post article from 1888 had the headline, 13 black men dressed as women, surprised at supper and arrested. William Dorsey Swan, the queen as his friends called him, fought back against the police. And this shows us that one of the very first acts of bodily resistance to violent, oppressive anti-queerness was enacted by formerly enslaved black drag queens. I'm going to say that again because I think that's really powerful. 
one of the very first acts of bodily resistance to violent, oppressive anti-queerness was enacted by formerly enslaved black drag queens. William Dorsey Swan's creativity shows us who God is. The radiantly black woman's joy in Song of Songs shows us who God is. Bayard Rustin's consistent truth-telling and truth-showing and truth-loving in the face of outright hatred shows us who God is. And it is my great hope that God's creative love will transform all of us into more resourceful, resilient people who see opportunities to co-create with God everywhere we go. We may face opposition like the woman in Song of Songs. We may face constant oppressive obstacles like fire to rust him. We may have the authorities busting down our doors like William Dorsey Swan. And yet we know, we know the creative God is always with us. And the creative God's spirit moves among us, around us, between us, despite us, and for us. God's creative spirit lives within us. And when we recognize that spirit within ourselves and within others, we are set free to love extraordinarily. This creative love is not just meant for romance, but for friendship, for neighborhood, for community. This creative love animates us and allows us to pursue justice Pursue God's kingdom here on earth. So let's get creative, y'all. Let's find a way when there is no way. Let's bring life to places that seem to be teeming with death. Let's love with revelry and with joy. Let us remember the stories of those whose creative love can guide us on the journey. May it be so, and amen.